Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I am Jue Liang, a co-host of the channel. Today I have the honor and pleasure of speaking with Dr. Annabella Pitkin about her new book, Renunciation and Longing, The Life of a 20th Century Himalayan Buddhist Saint. Dr. Annabella Pitkin is Assistant Professor of Buddhism and East Asian Religions at Lehigh University. Her current research focuses on Tibetan Buddhist modernity, Buddhist ideals of renunciation, miracle narratives, and Buddhist biographies. She received her BA from Harvard University and PhD in religion from Columbia University. She has lived and traveled extensively in the Himalayan region, China, India, and Nepal. She also serves on the editorial committee of the Treasury of Lives, a biographical encyclopedia of Tibet, Inner Asia, and the Himalayas. Today, we'll be discussing her monograph, Renunciation and Longing, the Life of a 20th Century Himalayan Buddhist Saint, which is a part of the University of Chicago Press's Buddhism and Modernity series, and will be published in May 2022. Welcome, Annabella. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful to be speaking with you, too. So as it is a part of the tradition of the New Books Network channel, I'd like to start by asking you a biographical question. How did you come to religious studies and Buddhist studies in particular in the first place? It's such a wonderful question, and it's an interesting exercise to look back over uh, my trajectory that got me to this point. And one of the things I often say to people is that on the surface, these were not my interests in college. And when I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I majored in something called social studies, and my main interest was in political philosophy. But the truth is that even though I only took one course in Buddhist studies as an undergraduate, I was very interested already in what I see now were the questions that animate me today and that underlie this book. And in particular, I was very interested in human confrontations with the problem of suffering and how different thinkers have addressed suffering and attempted to uh, try to solve it. And I was also always very interested as an undergraduate in the ways that people imagine and tell stories about relationships. And so I see that, in fact, those two questions, narratives about relationships and uh, ways of approaching uh, and healing suffering, those are very much questions that moved me toward graduate school and that uh, motivated me to begin this project. After I was an undergraduate, I spent a few years actually working in the nonprofit world before I decided to go back to graduate school. And when I began graduate school at Columbia, I actually first thought that I might do a comparative project uh, between the work of the Jewish scholar and philosopher Emmanuel Levinas and uh, Shantideva. And then actually I had the opportunity in graduate school at Columbia to begin studying Tibetan Buddhist literature with Professor Robert Thurman. And Professor Thurman was the first person who mentioned to me Kunulama Tenzin Gelsen and said, if the 20th century interests you and you're interested in Shantideva, then there's really only one uh, person that you should investigate and it's Kunulama Tenzin Gelsen. So I thought about that for a while and then a wonderful piece of 
um, Buddhist coincidence or what we might call in Tibetan tendril occurred. I was in a bookstore with my own mother and she reached up onto a shelf and pulled down a paperback volume, which turned out to be uh, the translation of Kunulama Tenzin Gyaltsen's poems uh, on Bodhicitta by the wonderful uh, translator Gareth Sparham. And I had no idea what I was looking at, but as I began to read the introduction to that book and read the poems, I thought, wow, this really is the most interesting uh, reflection that I've encountered on the themes that I've been trying to approach over the last several years in graduate school. And so it developed into a project that was simultaneously a biography, but also a thematic uh, reflection on questions of relationship and questions of suffering uh, and questions of what it means to live a Buddhist life. And so I can say retroactively that, of course, this book has been brewing uh, for a very long time in my intellectual trajectory. I also had the wonderful opportunity at Columbia to work with several other scholars, uh, Professor Greg Tuttle, uh, whose work on Tibetan history has really influenced me very profoundly and shaped a lot of my thinking, um, and Professor Qinfeng Yu, uh, whose work on the role of narrative in Chinese Buddhism has also really kind of opened my eyes uh, to many aspects of the work I pursue today. Um, and perhaps I'll, there were a number of other people who were really important influences on my thinking Professor Susan Shapiro, Professor Elliot Wolfson, Professor Courtney Bender, um, and perhaps I can touch on some of the the ways that my ideas connect with theirs later on in our conversation. Thank you. What a fascinating story. And even as you relate this intellectual journey of yours, you can see it is really peppered with what we call auspicious connections or denje in Buddhist studies and also relationships as well. And I think for for both of us who are teaching a lot of undergraduate students, it's probably also comforting to tell them that what you choose as your undergraduate major does not necessarily translate into um, what you will do in the future. So I think there's a sense of reassurance in that as well. So since we are onto the topic of how you came across the subject of your study, um, Kunulama Denzin Gelsen, I wonder if you might want to say a little bit more for the readers or the audience who are unfamiliar with this person and this Buddhist master. I would love to say a little bit more about his life since his life is simultaneously a kind of um, every man 20th century story. He lived at a particularly interesting time and he had quite a long life. He was born in 1895 and he passed away in 1977. And that period of time overlaps with many important events in 20th century history in Asia and in the Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist world. And he was both um, in some ways a figure uh, who participated in some of these events um, and an observer of these events. And at the same time, because of his practices of renunciation, which I describe in the book, he was someone who kept a very low profile. And so thinking about his life story is a kind of uh, detective uh, experience, a detective puzzle of finding out that he traveled 
to places uh, all across uh, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, kind of geographical map. And he met almost everyone in a sense. He met all kinds of important uh, 20th century uh, figures. And because of that, um, the story of his life is also the story of uh, 20th century intellectual history. So he was born in a small community in the Indian Himalaya, uh, Kunu in Tibetan, hence his name, uh, Kinor, um, is how it's usually uh, anglicized. Um, and uh, Kinor is a very beautiful Himalayan valley. Uh, it's a place with very, very old historic ties to Tibet um, and also uh, very long-standing connections to Tibetan Buddhism. And he was born in a Buddhist family, uh, but he left home as a young man of 19 and he began a life of journeying for the sake of Buddhist study. And his Buddhist studies took him first to Sikkim and then to Tashilungo Monastery uh, in Tibet and then uh, across uh, the Tibetan Plateau uh, through central Tibet, uh, into Kham and Amdo. He spent many years uh, in those eastern areas of Kham and Amdo. He went back to central Tibet and made more connections and uh, did some teaching as well as studying. He left and came into India, where he embraced uh, a really intensive period of study as a Sanskrit scholar, and he became one of the leading uh, Sanskritists of his generation among uh, Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist uh, practitioners and scholars. And he also embarked on a practice of um, very uh, intensive renunciation that I can say more about, but that had as one of its effects, the consequence of uh, making him live in very obscure circumstances. So he made some connections with uh, people as students and teachers that put him right in the middle of the story of 20th century intellectual life, while at the same time managing to remain almost unknown in another sense. And this left him free to travel by himself across the Indian subcontinent. Um, he went to southern India, he went to Calcutta, he went to uh, the Indian Himalaya. He um, really was just an extraordinary uh, journeyer. And eventually, he, in the early 1960s, became one of the teachers of the 14th Dalai Lama. And so as a result of that, Kunin Lama Tenzin Gyaltsen eventually become, became quite well known um, because of being uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, guru. And the Dalai Lama uh, took note of him in public settings a number of times, and that brought him to wider uh, attention. But Kunin Lama also turns out to have played a really important role uh, in the early 1960s in the development of uh, Tibetan Buddhist educational institutions uh, in India. And many of the uh, leading Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist teachers active today uh, have been his students, uh, either his Buddhism students or his students in the fields of Sanskrit and Tibetan uh, literature, or some combination of uh, the above. And then uh, Kunilama um, culminated his life back in the Himalayan region, in the Himalayan Valley of Lahul, which is very near 
to the valley where he was born. Um, and he is said to have passed away in the middle of a teaching session. So uh, we can say that his life is simultaneously the life of a renunciant and in, in a sense, a very private person uh, who maintained anonymity a great deal of the time. And at the same time, his life story is also the story of a consummate teacher whose students uh, are some of the most notable teachers themselves in the present day, and who include not only luminaries of the Tibetan and Himalayan uh, Buddhist worlds, but also students uh, who were converts from outside the Himalayan region, including uh, American and British uh, disciples. So it's a really 20th century story, uh, and it allows me to think about uh, what it means to reflect on the passage of time and the continuity of stories and of memories. Thank you. And what a fascinating discovery. And I have to admit, before I started talking with you and getting to know more about your project, I had very little knowledge of who Kununama is. And to imagine him sitting at the center of the 1920th century Tibetan Buddhist landscape at large and to to have us missing this critical part of the religious memory and historical memory at the time is just something I think of. But now that we we have your book to refer to, which is um, extremely fortunate. And I should also mention that for the reader who um, might be wanting to refer to this book, it actually opens with a map, actually three maps of Kununama's travels expertly produced by the Treasury of Life, as well as a um, authoritative chronology of Kununama's life. So there is a lot of um, research and a lot of, like you said, detective work that you have done in order to bring this book into completion. Since you mentioned that this book is a biography of Kununama in a sense, but it is also at the same time a thematic study, I was wondering if you would like to talk a little bit more about the organizational scheme of this book and its um, intended purposes. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. And it is true that I, in fact, struggled for for a number of years about whether it would be most rewarding to write this book as a conventional, chronologically structured biography or whether it made more sense to approach this material in thematic terms. And I ultimately decided that for several reasons, Kunulama's life cannot be fully understood without also thinking about the ways that we know about his life, partly because as a function of his renunciatory practice, which included uh, a kind of intentional self-concealment and withdrawal from fame and from uh, what are called in Tibetan the eight worldly concerns, um, which include things like fame and praise. Um, he distanced himself from a number of the mechanisms that intellectual figures and Buddhist scholars often engage with to uh disseminate their views and ideas. So he didn't publish his own uh, autobiography and he gave very few large public teachings. He also seems to have discouraged people from writing uh, detailed biographies of him during his lifetime, although he did answer questions sometimes when students asked him. Uh, but it is difficult to find uh, sources on his life 
that are not mediated by the recollections uh, and devotional experiences of his students. And when I began to think about that process, reflecting on the work of leading scholars in the field of Buddhist biography, such as Janet Gyatso, whose work has been a tremendous influence on my own, and without whose work, this project wouldn't uh, be possible conceptually, um, I really took to heart the important point that she makes that the voice of the disciples is always present in the biography of the master, uh, even if that biography is framed as an autobiography. And I began to pay closer and closer attention to the narrative uh, motifs and developments in the stories that I was reading and also hearing from people I spoke with who had known Kunilama. Um, And I began to focus on those narrative dynamics themselves. And so one of my broader uh, interventions in this work actually is the attention paid to narrative and to the role of narrative, uh, and I use the technical term imaginary, not in the sense of pretend, but in the sense of a landscape of images, metaphors, stories, narratives, uh, from which uh, writers and thinkers and also people thinking about their own lives draw. Uh, And in doing this, I draw on the work of uh, Stephen Collins and A.K. Ramanujan. And uh, that approach to thinking about the imaginaries of Kunulama's life led me to realize that that, in a sense, was the story that Kunulama intentionally seems to have withdrawn from public view, leaving a number of absences in the biological, in the biographical record, and that that, in fact, uh, provides the opportunity to thematize the role of absence. And that, in fact, turns out to have a great deal to do with renunciation. And so what I ultimately claim in the book is, first of all, that renunciation is the primary theme in all stories about Kunilama, but it appears hand in hand with the other primary theme, which is the theme of the Bodhisattva's life, uh, the Bodhisattva's generous uh, teaching activity. And when I first noticed these two strands, and I began to think about how I could thematically draw on them, to tell the story of Kunilama's life and to direct reader attention to the gaps in that story um, and think with the reader about those gaps. I noticed a kind of tension between the theme of absence and departure in Kunilama's biography, which is echoed in the gaps in the the biographical record, and then the theme of connection the theme in particular of lineage connection, that Kunulama is significant in many ways because of his work as a student who collected lineages and as a teacher who passed them on most notably to the Dalai Lama, but also to so many other uh, leading uh, intellectuals and scholars and Buddhist teachers. And so in thinking through lineage connection, and the separations imposed by renunciation, those two poles became the animating themes of this book. And I find that those two themes are echoed throughout the literature, both oral and textual, on Kunulama's life. Thank you. And what a fascinating way to 
think about life stories and their role in in Buddhist studies and in Buddhist literature. And I I wholeheartedly agree with you to to pay attention to narratives. And I, I think it's quite fascinating when you mentioned a while ago saying that the narrative for you is the story. And I, I think the readers, if they read the book, they can see how you skillfully navigated of paying attention to the text, to the narrative, but also extract yourself to reflect on the wider historical background. And you see this, I think, two of the examples that come to mind, even for those who are not interested in the study of narrative, is for those who want to read about Tibetan Buddhist life stories, the story of the the current Dalai Lama when he first arrived in India. And that's in chapter three. He had this whole event where he went and paid homage to Kununama, which is a heightened event that really highlighted the concealment of fame, which is intended by Kununama, but also the, the unintentional consequences of publicity that event brought. And I think that also comes to the fore of the death scene where you see the intervention of helicopters, a dramatic unfolding of events. I think even as someone who claims to be actually writing a thematic study, I think there's a lot of beautifully and skillfully rendered narratives that is actually, for me, quite enjoyable to read. So I also wanted to highlight that as well. Thank and you. Since we're onto the theme of uh, renunciation, continuity, and as well as separation, I think this is also a, a general summary I have um, of your, the thematic focus of the books that I have gathered is that it really is a very nuanced treatment of perhaps what I will say one, two of the most important themes you see in the Buddhist soteriology, that is the, the ideal of renunciation. And I was wondering if you want to say a little bit more about the complexities of renunciation and maybe specifically in the Tibetan context. Thank you. Yes, it's very interesting to think through the category of renunciation in the ways that Kunu Lama practiced it and also in the ways that, uh, frankly, it's often been misunderstood. So one of the uh, points that I try to make in the book is that the practice of renunciation as it appears narratively is often described using images and metaphors and uh, story elements that highlight the dynamic of isolation and separation and that highlight uh, the theme of uh, turning one's back on those eight worldly concerns, um, sometimes uh, outsiders to uh, Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist communities have particularly been interested uh, and this is actually true uh, in terms of uh, outsider, for example, European perspectives on uh, Buddhism more generally, um, people from non-Buddhist settings have often focused on the ways that renunciation often curtails marriage and sexual activity. But in fact, within Tibetan and Himalayan literature, the really dramatic separation in many stories is actually from the family in which one is born. So it's the pain and difficulty of separating from one's parents. So thinking through those kinds of stories, I noticed on the one hand, the intensification that many authors engage in to heighten experiences 
uh, affective experiences of pathos, of sorrow, of sadness, of uh, missing the people that one leaves behind or family members missing the person who goes to live as a renunciant. And so far from the caricature of Buddhists as being without emotion, in fact, narratives of Buddhist renunciation across the Buddhist world are extremely uh, emotionally rich and textured and nuanced and psychologically complex and affectively charged. And I wanted to pay a great deal of attention to that in this book and to draw in stories that some readers may already be quite familiar with, but that readers uh, who uh, are less um, familiar with Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist literature perhaps won't know. So I tell some stories of figures like the 11th century Saint Milarepa or the 19th century uh, Buddhist master Shabkar, um, whose narratives complement Kunumama's own. And the totality of these stories, when taken together, give some sense of the uh, the landscape of the imagination in which accounts of renunciation are told, and also in which individual renouncers and their families and teachers and students interpret and make sense of their own experiences. And on the other hand, I also wanted to draw attention to the very important point um, which scholars like uh, Shane Clark and others have drawn attention to that despite the very intense rhetoric of solitude in Buddhist literature, in fact, Buddhism is not a solo project, as I say in the book. Um, Buddhism is a, is a collaborative project uh, in many social contexts, and that is something that we can very much see in Kunulama's own life. So we have in Kunulama's own life, uh, in all of the oral and textual accounts of it, we have very dramatic scenes of parting and separation and sadness, but we also have, for example, uh, his lifelong relationship uh, with uh, his family um, and his teaching to his family, his teaching to his neighbors um, and people he grew up with, uh, his uh, siblings supporting him in material terms, sending him a small amount of money, um, remaining devoted to him as his disciples. Um, we see all kinds of manifestations of connection, and that's very much not an anomaly. That's very much uh, the norm. And that's a norm that goes back to some of the earliest uh, Vinaya literature, both in Sanskrit and in Pali, in which um, there is a tremendous amount of narrative in which um, people renounce together, family members renounce together. And so I wanted to draw attention to the simultaneity and the complementarity of discourses of separation and discourses of intensive connection. And those uh, ways of thinking led me to see the entwinement of renunciation on the one hand and lineage connection on the other hand, uh, separation uh, for the purposes of self-cultivation on the one hand and teacher-student uh, affective ties and ongoing uh, connections across both geographic space and, and chronological time. Uh, and the way that those two dynamics were actually um, not at odds, but seemed in the uh, corpus of accounts of Kunilama's life to be very much uh, complements to one another. And so that eventually became 
the main thematic focus of the book. Thank you. What a wonderful explanation on, on the complexities and the actual contradictions of renunciation. And I really like this quote that you wrote on page 12 in the introduction, where it says the, the ideal of renunciation itself is also often framed as socially engaged independent Himalayan resources, since, quote, true, quote, unquote, true renunciation should be motivated by a Buddhist understanding of altruism, compassion, and service to others. Where you also, right after that, you discuss the, the Chajawa ideal, or what we might translate as a, a renunciant beggar hermit, a wandering, often hidden individual who relinquishes not only position, but also fame, attention, and all worldly kind of success or ordinary activities, literally someone who does nothing or is without activities. But also, in the next chapter, you also highlight the continuities and connections, and especially the central location that Kunayama operates from, or he occupies in terms of 20th century Tibetan religious history. So I think a few ways you mentioned in thinking about that is he is a world traveler. He traveled literally all over Tibetan cultural areas. So there's that geographical connection. He also has been teachers to many important lamas, has received teachings to many important lamas at this time. So there's a lineage connection. He's also someone who crosses sectarian as well as religious boundaries. And he's well-versed in Sanskrit as well as all the different Tibetan Buddhist schools. So while we kind of move on from renunciation, I wonder if you want to add a little bit more about Kununama's role in terms of continuity or connection in that sense. Definitely. Um, so as a connector, Kununama seems to have made it uh, the main focus of the first half of his life uh, and maybe arguably of his entire life, uh, the project of seeking out great masters and receiving teachings from them. And great masters here doesn't necessarily mean the most famous names, although he certainly made contact with some of the leading luminaries of the early 20th century, um, people like uh, Kempo Shenga um, in Kham, um, people uh, that had connections going back actually to the efflorescence of Buddhist creativity uh, connected with non-sectarian thinking, um, particularly in Eastern Tibet. Uh, so figures like uh, Zapato Rinpoche, um, who is you know, remembered as a, a kind of towering figure of the 19th century. Um, Kunin Lama made multiple connections with Pato Rinpoche's lineage and with Pato Rinpoche's uh, students and, and sort of grand students, people who were the students of his students. And Kunulama then was able later in his life to share the transmissions that he had received as a young man widely across uh, the Himalayan region and uh, the Tibetan Buddhist world, including uh, with Tibetan diaspora communities in India. Um, and he continued to do this work of sharing the transmissions that he'd gathered as a younger man um, up until the very end of his life. So as I mentioned, he passed away uh, in 1977. Um, he was said to be in the middle of, of giving a teaching. And so 
the combination of his pursuit of lineage transmissions and then his sharing of what he had received with his journeying means that he's one of a a generation of connector figures who physically link what is a very broad geographic area, um, but they bind it together in a sense through the web of lineage connections that they help to extend and to maintain across the plateau. Um, Perhaps the most famous example of a web of lineage connections like this, um, Pacha Rinpoche's uh, lineage is is an extraordinary example of this, but also uh, the 19th century Eastern Tibetan uh, yogic master Togden Shakyashri um, has a a really uh, extensive lineage of family and incarnation and transmission connections. Um, And this is a a wonderful uh, lineage that has been written about by a number of scholars, uh, including my colleague, Amy Holmes, Tugchung Darpa. And Kunilama entered into Shakyashri's lineage as a very young man, as a teenager, probably a 15-year-old boy, um, the first person who gave him the crucial um, pointing out instructions of the nature of mind, according to his biographers, uh, was one of Togden Shakyashri's disciples who had himself gone on a long journey to teach in the Himalayan region at the Indo-Tibetan border. So in a sense, from his earliest training, Kunilama was a participant in these plateau-wide, region-wide webs of lineage. And he's by no means the only person who did this kind of connective and traveling work, but he was a particularly um, active figure and he traveled particularly far at a particularly interesting uh, historical moment. And so his role as a connector uh, really stands out. And I find it so striking that this role as a connective figure goes hand in hand with this other layer of his identity, which is uh, his identity as a renunciant. And I didn't uh, mention it uh, before, but some of his you know, renunciation made him very unconventional in the terms of the communities that he was part of. He lived, for example, for a long time in a Hindu ashram in the Indian city of Benares or Varanasi. And this was a, a choice that complicated many geographic, sectarian, racial, ethnic, linguistic, and religious boundaries in a way that is a kind of classic hallmark, I think, of uh, Kunilama's activities and also of how they are remembered, um, in which because of Kunilama's uh, widespread connections, because of the ecumenical way in which he approached making connections, as far as we can tell, and because of the willingness that he seems to have had to go to places where he would be a stranger and where people would not be able to clearly identify who he was or where he was from. His life and then his own teaching activities cuts across many of these kinds of boundaries. And so that sometimes produces gaps in the record about him, but it also causes him to be remembered in a very distinctive way and to emerge as a very distinctive figure who uh, makes connections across not just geographic and chronological distances, but also across distances of 
culture and concept and sect and philosophical orientation. And that's another thing that particularly drew me to want to write about him. Thank you. And yes, I agree. And as we have been needing to constantly remind our students and as well as constantly remind ourselves is that this world has was and has been and will always be an interconnected place. And it's in many more ways interconnected than you have imagined. So that's a that's a wonderful, wonderful reminder for that. And speaking of lineage and its critical importance, actually, in terms of the transmission of Buddhist teachings, I think that is always something we, we emphasize in Buddhist studies. And one of the most important ways to carry on this lineage transmission is the relationship between a teacher or a guru in Tibetan Lama and their disciple. And I also find that you offer a expert treatment of this devotional relationship between a guru and a disciple. And I find this really beautiful quote, again, at the beginning of the book, talking about the mutuality and importance of this relationship of indivisibility, saying that Buddhist-teacher-student relationship are fraught with the highest life or death stakes. Buddhist narrative traditions address this high-stake vulnerabilities in a host of imaginal and ritual ways. And I was wondering if you would like to speak a little bit more about your treatment of guru-disciple relationship and also as well as the emotional and the aesthetic and the narrative aspects that comes to the fore in this book. Yes, thank you. Um, I would love to speak about that. So when I began to think thematically about how to structure the book, I wanted to move between the poles of uh, absence and presence, separation and connection, uh, renunciation and lineage connection. And one of the connective tissues, if you will, is the affective uh, dimension of the relationship between students and teachers or gurus and disciples. The fact that these are not uh, somehow relationships that are dry or uh, remote, but rather that Buddhist literature, again, going back to very early Pali and Sanskrit sources, Buddhist literatures are full of descriptions of the bodies of students and teachers responding to one another so, for example, I open with the vignette of the Buddha Shakyamuni um, passing away and his cousin and disciple and attendant Ananda um, being heartbroken and devastated and, uh, you know, begging him not to die. And the Buddha saying, in fact, it is possible for a Buddha to remain much longer in life, but the student has to ask and you didn't ask. And so it's this harrowing story of a kind of missed opportunity for connection. And throughout that story in the sutra literature and the stories that come just before and just after it, we get these vivid descriptions of Ananda's physical response to the fear of being separated from the Buddha, that his hair stands on end, that he feels personally ill. Later on in Tibetan literatures and Himalayan literatures that I look at, um, these features continue, involuntary tears, uh, trembling, hair standing on end, um, very, very embodied, visceral accounts of what it feels like for a disciple and a guru to connect and also to be separated or to face the possibility of being separated. And so in thinking about 
that affective dimension, then I became very interested in the uh, mechanisms that Buddhist communities deploy, ritual mechanisms, uh, meditational mechanisms, uh, collective uh, practice mechanisms, but also uh, rhetorical devices, uh, aspects of narrative and historiography, um, ways of recounting lineage, uh, literary genres. Um, There are many, many dimensions to the instantiation of uh, the ongoingness of guru-disciple connection, uh, but also the constant awareness that guru-disciple separation is possible. And so uh, the book is called Renunciation and Longing because those emerged as the the kind of two affective moments. Renunciation uh, is a kind of antidote to suffering, right, in a conventional Buddhist sense. Um, It's the sort of appropriate response to a confrontation with uh, the fact of suffering, the first noble truth. Um, and at the same time, to the extent that renunciation imposes separations um, and home leaving, then there is an affective response of longing. And what I discovered looking at accounts of Kunalama's life and looking also at Buddhist literatures of uh, lineage history and Buddhist literatures of guru devotional practice, things like the six session guru yoga, also things like supplication prayers, um, laments uh, on the passing away of a teacher, uh, prayers for a teacher's swift rebirth, uh, prayers for teachers' long lives uh, and good health, uh, shabten prayers and rituals, uh, and there are many, many other genres and and, uh, literary genres that, that we could think of in this context, I noticed that the affect of longing seemed to function as the, the kind of uh, glue or the continuous thread that animated um, ways of telling stories of teachers' lives and of student-teacher relationship, and that also provided productive techniques for uh, addressing the fact of separation without allowing separations to destabilize the fact and the importance of continuous student-teacher connection. So if we think about lineages as networks of uh, human beings or chains of relationship that extend over time and also over geography, then you can imagine that at each moment in the chain, a separation could occur And that would be devastating for the continuity of the lineage. And longing and ritual and narrative uh, practices for cultivating longing as an intentional uh, activity, and then for expressing it and mobilizing it uh, in devotional practice, um, that seems to have uh, this rich potential for overcoming the problem of separation. At the same time, if we look, as I do in chapter five of the book, and a little bit in chapter six, where I think about Kunalama's own passing away, if we look at uh, literary examples where a teacher and student have become separated or where a teacher has passed away, and we look at devotional uh, prayers and uh, advice instructions for how to do devotional uh, practices, we see that the sadness of separation is a a recommended element of devotional practice, that uh, students are exhorted 
to cultivate feelings of sadness and longing as a way to energize their practices of devotion. And so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to really continually return the reader to Tibetan and Himalayan Buddhist uh, interpretive tools and intellectual interventions for thinking about um, Kunumama's biography and the larger literatures that it's a part of and looking at commentarial literature and devotional literature and as well as historiography, what I saw was the productive harnessing of the affect of sadness into uh, the dynamic of longing as a mechanism for inspiring devotion in a way that seemed very uh, specifically uh, aimed at maintaining the strength of lineage connections. Thank you. And I definitely can feel the attention and the, the minute attention you pay to all the effective and aesthetic dimensions in Tibetan Buddhist literature, but also in all the different literary resources that you draw on. And one thing I noticed um, throughout the entire book is that how much you rely on the rich resource from virtually all traditions of Buddhist literature, not just from Tibetan Buddhism, but also from its Indian and its Indic predecessors. So you've been citing from the Buddha's life story, the verse of advice from Shantideva, a lot of um, Buddhist, traditional Buddhist narratives, story of Milarepa and Mata, devotional poetries, even written by st- disciples or written by their teachers, and also Kununama, his own voice of advice to disciples as well. And I think for anyone who is a student of Tibetan Buddhist literature or just Buddhist literature, this is a massful treatment of how are we thinking about Buddhist literature, what do they do, what are the different dimensions that comes into play. So I really want you to highlight that as well. But also speaking of literary and effective metaphors, I was particularly struck by your analysis, I think at the end, like you said, at the end of chapter five, at the beginning of chapter six, about the dual texture of the guru-disciple relationship, especially the two metaphors. One is like feeling a vase completely to the brim, and the other is like water dissolving into water as a gloss of the guru-disciple relationship. I was wondering if um, you might come and unpack that for the readers a little bit. Very much so. So one of the um, recurring literary motifs I noticed uh, across a number of different genres of uh, guru devotional material, including biographical accounts um, and uh, accounts of lineage, um, but also in places Uh, For example, where students remember their own teachers, uh, places where uh, a given teacher's transmissions to their students are being described. Um, There are a number of different kinds of literary sites in which this metaphor uh, appeared. And it really kind of leaped out to me that there were these uh, images that had to do with pouring and filling, often uh, of liquid, often of water, sometimes of melted butter, Um, various kinds of of pourable substances. And so clearly the imagery, one image is is the one that you mentioned of filling a vase, uh, filling a container all the way to the top, all the way to the brim. 
Uh, and then the other is um, the image of dissolving, dissolving water into water. And of course, if you dissolve water into water, you wouldn't be able to separate them. So the metaphor of filling a vase to the brim is a, a classic uh, Tibetan literary motif for describing the way in which a master, a teacher, a lama, bestows their transmissions on their closest disciples, what are often called the heart disciples. And those closest disciples uh, should, according to the rhetorical ideal of the tradition, um, they should receive all the teachings that the master can bestow, and they should receive them completely. Um, and I say uh, a little bit in the book about how um, it's not simply enough to meet a teacher or even get some instructions from them to become an authorized lineage transmitter oneself, but there are quite elaborate requirements for receiving the teachings, for keeping ethical commitments and other kinds of vows, for practicing uh, the techniques that are instructed, um, for uh, ideally experiencing certain results um, because of those practices, uh, and so forth. And so the number of persons who are able to do all of those things are often described as being relatively few. And this creates a kind of rhetorical um, heightened stakes for articulating when a moment of transmission has really been complete, when the recipient has gotten everything. Because of course, whoever has received everything, like a vase being filled to the brim, is then being positioned by the narrators of the textual tradition and the oral tradition to then go on to be a lineage transmitter in their own right. And so uh, we haven't touched very much in this conversation so far in matters of authority uh, and uh, competition, but clearly one kind of concern is uh, with uh shoring up the authority of particular lineage holders, and also with confirming in each generation of transmission that what is being transmitted is authentic and authoritative from an authoritative holder who's fully uh, developed and able to transmit to others. Because of course, uh, Buddhist claims about the soteriological benefits of Buddhist practice involve claims about the continuity of the transmission in a regression that goes back ideally all the way to an enlightened figure such as Shakyamuni or another enlightened figure. And so in that sense, the metaphor of the vase that's filled to the brim is a really powerful metaphorical intervention to uh, instantiate the authority of the next heir in the lineage sequence. But I was really struck by how that metaphor, powerful as it is, has a kind of unspoken shadow side, which is it is possible to imagine a vase that doesn't get filled to the brim. And also, you know, in our daily lives, we're familiar with a variety of containers, as have Buddhist authors been at many different periods of time. So vases can be broken, they can leak Disciples can be like leaky pots, you know, the, the transmission can kind of leak back out of them again. They could be knocked over. Um, lots of things could go wrong. And the other metaphor that you mentioned of water being dissolved into water, again, is a metaphor of indivisibility that the Buddhist 
uh, enlightenment or realizations, experiences of the teacher should be seamlessly passed on, um, mixed indivisibly with the realizations of the student. So this, again, is a very powerful claim about the authenticity and the authority of the lineage that will then be presumably transmitted to others. But of course, one could imagine a situation in which what's supposed to happen doesn't happen. And in fact, uh, Tibetan and Himalayan historiography, like Buddhist historiography in other places, does contain examples of lineages that die out, where uh, lineage uh, isn't transmitted or isn't transmitted to very many students or students themselves die before they can transmit. Um, various kinds of, of interruptions can occur. And so I was particularly interested both in the vividness, the kind of lived material reality of these two metaphors and the way that they recur in Buddhist uh, lineage accounts and devotional literature. But I was also very interested in the tacit acknowledgement of uh, Buddhist authors within these very metaphors of how separation can interrupt lineage connection. And so I see practices of devotion, as I describe in chapter five, I see practices of devotion, including the harnessing of longing and affects of sadness as techniques for ensuring that the transmission that is supposed to happen is not interrupted. Thank you. And this is such a, a powerful reminder that in addition to the beautiful metaphors and the sentiment of longing as something that could be extremely enlightening and liberative, there's also a sense of danger. There's also a the power competition and authority, like you said, the, the shady side of image transmission and the, the darker end of that metaphor as well. And since we are talking about the shady side, and I think one thing that immediately comes to my mind is that actually speaking of Buddhist lineage and especially Tibetan Buddhist lineage holders, historically, most of them have been men. And you mentioned in the book that there is this particular relationship between Kununama and his, his attendant, Jigong Kangjuma, who was with him in his last years as his personal attendant and close disciple, you also mentioned that there is, is a specific concern for women and for giving women teaching from Kununama because he considered their opportunity for Buddhist studies were otherwise quite limited. I was wondering if you would like to say a little bit more about his relationship with the Jigong Kangjuma or his relationship or his ideas with women's education or women's status in Buddhism? It's a really fascinating area and one uh, that I'm particularly interested in myself. Um, and I would first and foremost say that I would refer readers and listeners, uh, particularly those who read German, to the wonderful study of the Drikun Kandroma's life written by the German scholar uh, Jorgen Manshart, uh, who also is a wonderful translator of Kunumama's poems about Bodhicitta into German and has done extensive biographical research on Kunumama's own life. Um, so he, his work is really a crucial intervention in bringing the life of the Drikun Kandrama Sherap Tarchin uh, to a broader uh, non-Tibetan reading and speaking audience. And she's an extraordinary figure in her own right. She's a virtuoso renunciant uh, on a par with Kunumama Tenzing Yeltsin, 
at least as far as I've been able to see, she's she's really um, equally committed to very similar kinds, strikingly similar kinds of renunciatory practice, um, a kind of self-concealment, a kind of deliberate uh, practice of intentional poverty and uh, modesty so that she wasn't famous, uh, you know, often isn't famous now. Um, she, you know, her biography is hard to piece together because she, again, uh, was very reticent about sharing her accomplishments. Um, but she, too, was someone who collected teachings from a large number of leading teachers, uh, both in Tibet. Uh, she was from uh, Drikung uh, area. Um in central Tibet, uh, about a, a short uh, day's drive nowadays from uh, Lhasa. Um, and she came uh, to India in 1959. Um, and she very modestly, uh, without claiming the title of Lama, uh, taught a great many uh, figures who were active in the region around Sopema or Rivalsar. Uh, in northern India during the uh, 1960s and uh, early 1970s. And she was also very committed to the practice and study of bodhicitta, the the bodhisattva quality of wanting to be enlightened for the sake of others, which is this core Mahayana value. So the Drikun Khandroma was really uh, kind of a parallel figure to Kunilama with many overlapping interests. And she seems to have been an extremely powerful person in her own right. She not only uh, weathered the tumultuous and painful events of the 1950s and 60s, uh, including involuntary poverty uh, imposed by her circumstances, um, but she was also apparently a very ferocious teacher. Apparently a lot of very famous people were really quite frightened of her. Um, even people that she calls her guru um, said that, oh my goodness, you know, she's, she's you know, really uh, impressive and intimidating, and she has the highest standards, which it's very difficult to live up to her very high standards. Um, but she read the poems on Bodhicitta that Kunilama uh, wrote in the early 1960s, um, which are his most uh, famous and probably uh, beloved work and are translated into a number of languages now. Uh, I talk about uh, a few of them uh, in chapter four of this book. And when she read this volume of poems about Bodhicitta, it was apparently like a lightning bolt for her. And she said to her closest female companion and student, um, this is the Lama that I've been looking for and I must find him. And then because Kunu Lama was such a, a self-concealing style of renunciant, it took them some time to find him. And it seems not to have been until 1970 that they were able to uh, catch up with him where he was living in Bodhgaya. And, but once they did, then the Drikun Khandroma uh, seems almost never to have left his side. And she assigned herself the task of being his attendant, of preparing his food, of finding food for him, uh, sometimes of soliciting donations of food or of, you know, small funds to, to get food for him. Um, she was very solicitous of his health. And in that physical aspect of their relationship in which she uh, tried to take care of his health, I believe that we see an interesting further instantiation of the uh, entwinement of renunciation and devotional connection and longing. 
uh, because Kunumama's renunciation caused him not to take very good care of himself. He didn't eat very much. He ate only once a day. He was famously very, very thin. He had a number of health problems. He had a lot of problems with his eyes. And it was very difficult, apparently, many students attest this, um, to get him to go to the doctor or to eat more or to accept any kind of material comforts. And so he would at least outwardly struggle with the Drikunkandroma over her attempts to feed him and care for him. And he would attempt to say, you know, don't listen to her, don't, you know, send her away. Um, and I see her attempts to extend his life as almost a kind, it's a little bit of a, of a metaphorical extension, but almost a kind of um, life extension prayer, a kind of shabdan that she wanted to have her teacher around longer. And his renunciation and lack of concern with his own body and, and health um, sort of moved him away. And the irony is that in this practice, the Drikun Kandrama Sherp Tarchin herself did the same thing. She seems to have been totally unconcerned with her own physical comfort and health. She got tuberculosis during these years. She became extremely thin. She didn't eat very well. And her own students and disciples were very worried about her and begged her to slow down and take better care of herself. So we have this image of these two um, really powerful personalities, deeply committed to, to renunciation. They're described by their students as very courageous, very unconcerned with their own sort of health and safety. And then we have this sense of their disciples who remember them and who tell these stories, in both cases, wishing that they would have been healthier and lived longer. So that's one kind of layer of their relationship. Another layer, though, is it's possible um, for this story of the Drikun Kandroma uh, kind of waiting on Kunulama and, and sort of being dismissed by him, it's possible for that to, to land kind of jarringly on contemporary audiences and perhaps audiences, you know, even at the time, uh, if we are not aware of what a powerful practitioner and teacher the Drikun Kandroma is remembered as being by her own students. So she seeks out Kunulama and she commits herself to uh, living with him and taking care of him at a time where she is already a quite recognized teacher. And she already has a circle of disciples who are devoted to her. And I think it's really important to add that context that her uh, role of care for Kunulama doesn't come out of as far as I'm able to distinguish it, um, a kind of um, experience of disempowerment in the conventional sense. Um, larger structural questions aside, those are of course very interesting and I don't have the materials to uh, speak to those larger, more structural questions. For example, the Drikun Kandrama Sherp Tarchin didn't leave, uh, to my knowledge, an autobiography, the Rangnam. And so some of her own uh, perspectives aren't available to me. But looking sort of at the externals, uh, we can certainly see that she uh, seeks out Kunulama um, as a mature practitioner with her own circle of disciples and with other teachers. So it really has a sense that that she must have, it, it reads to me at least, as um, a kind of uh, powerful exercise of her own agency and intentionality. Uh, there are also um, many suggestions in uh, textual and oral accounts of Kunilana specifically that she was not by any means an exception. In fact, many of his uh, disciples uh, 
especially at the end of his life, were women. Um, but I think it's important for us to distinguish that from something like uh, an explicitly uh, present-day feminist sensibility, for which I don't have any emphasis, any evidence. Kunun Lama's own recorded comments about teaching women were that women's lives were very hard and they faced more obstacles than men and they faced more obstacles in accessing um, intellectual teachings and, and Buddhist teachings um, and basic literacy. And so out of his compassion for uh, people who suffered, he prioritized women because of their disenfranchisement. But there's no evidence of his describing uh, women's position as somehow uh, structurally unsound and something that should be addressed. So I, I want to carefully distinguish um, you know, what we know and what we don't know. Um, that said, he is remembered in his home Valley of Kinnor um, as really a central figure in women's religious uh, communities, a central figure in uh, communities of ordained renunciant women, uh, Kunu uh, Jomos, uh, Kunu nuns. Um, his poems and songs and teachings are uh, really important in, in um, oral and literature there and also textual literature. Um, and the late um, much lamented scholar Linda Lamaccio, who uh, did just the most crucial and important research on the Jomo tradition in Kinor, um, she documents and recorded uh, many uh, oral recordings of uh, Jomo's songs and narratives about Kunulama and about his importance in the, the nun's uh, lineage and, and teaching uh, community there. So he really had a very important effect on women's religious practice and education in the Kinor Valley. And the people who were with him when he passed away were his four ordained female disciples, uh, three uh, Kinori uh, women disciples and the Drikunkandrava. Um, and so that's also an interesting biographical fact, um, which we can make of what we want. But it's certainly the case that the the narratives available to us of his final moments are narratives recounted by women. Thank you for offering this critical detail and the fascinating story between him and Jigong Kanjuma. And I certainly agree with you in that in my own teaching and in my own research, I constantly remind myself and my students is that when we're talking about Buddhist ideals, practices, and narratives, it's very easy for us to ascribe a perhaps liberal, progressive feminist ideals, words like agency, empowerment, gender equality into the materials you're interpreting. But that might not necessarily be the case, and there might be very possible and probably valuable to, to seek out what is a Buddhist logic of thinking about gender identity and thinking about benefiting all genders in this world and thinking about also um, sexuality and body and personhood as well. So I definitely appreciate that nuanced analysis. But that being said, I, I would like to actually kind of switch back to a contemporary debate that has been ongoing for the past decades, really, in contemporary, especially um, Euro-American Buddhist communities, which is a lot of the issues surrounding the more problematic aspect of the guru-disciple relationship. I think you emphasized in your book a lot about the indivisibility requires as much responsibility from the teacher 
as well as from the students. So it is really a mutual relationship. It is a relationship that actually gives power or gives an agency to both parties. I was wondering if you have been using that framework to reflect on, to analyze the contemporary debate of power abuse in Buddhist communities that we have seen. It's a wonderful question. And even though the materials that I have at my disposal for uh, learning about Kunulama's life, the oral and textual narratives that I have access to, don't directly speak uh, to these debates um, or, you know, directly record, uh, for example, comments from Kunulama on this topic or uh, on related topics, um, I do think that we see in the larger um, narrative patterns and rhetorics of guru-disciple relationship that I engage in the book, some interesting resources, both for uh, glimpsing uh, areas that could be extremely problematic, and also uh, for thinking about um, Buddhist terms of critique. Um, so I'm just beginning to think about how this might work. I have a few footnotes to this effect in the book. Um, and in brief, um, it seems to me that the rhetoric of indivisibility is a kind of double-edged sword, as is the narrative of what I call in the book student hardship. So precisely because indivisibility places such uh, significant obligations on both gurus and disciples and requires of them uh, such high standards of integrity and ethical conduct um, and implicates them each in their each other's behavior uh, in a kind of permanent way. At the, in the context of tantric vows, the behavior of students has the possibility to um, injure and, and make sick the guru and vice versa. So there's a, a real sense of um, obligation, responsibility, and as you put it, uh, potentially danger built into the uh, vocabulary of indivisible intimacy. And for that reason, uh, some of the work done by narratives and practices of separation, such as teachers appearing to test students, what I call the student hardship narrative, um, one of the ways to understand those narrative moments and uh, events in people's lives where they do seem to have experienced hardship, for example, Kunilama had to beg uh, Kenpo Shanga uh, to accept him as a student um, for a while before he was accepted. Um, if we think about the story of Milarepa, um, Milarepa has famously went through you know, many terrifying trials before Marpa accepted him as a student. So there are many literary and historical and biographical examples of this. And one of the ways to understand this testing is that it's part of making sure that both parties are ready for the obligations, burdens, and, and dangers, mutual vulnerabilities, perhaps we could say better, um, that the indissolvable uh, intimacy will uh, create. Um, at the same time, though, Clearly, that context of student hardship and testing is ripe for abuse and exploitation, right? It could easily be misused, um, and it would potentially be quite difficult to ascertain clearly um, when it's productive and when it's not, right? And so I, I think a number of uh, scholars, uh, people like Anne Gleig and Amy Langenberg uh, and others, are um, actively working 
um, with contemporary practitioners uh, and also with um, the philosophical materials and narratives at our disposal to kind of think through some of the implications of this. From Kunulama's life, one of the, the broader conceptual takeaways uh, that intrigues me is the role of renunciation as a term of critique. So renunciation, as Stephen Collins and A.K. Ramanujan um, point to, uh, is part of uh, what they describe as an, an imaginary, where the stories are kind of always there already. Um, renunciation and all of its images and metaphors and narrative devices uh, is part of a broader uh, landscape of concepts and uh, histories that many different kinds of people draw on. But Stephen Collins makes the important point that within an imaginary, such as Buddhist renunciation, or such as Ramanujan describes the Ramayana um, in its many cultural contexts, um, in that context, we are not just getting one story. So Stephen Collins makes the crucial point that imaginaries are sites of contestation, and we hear critical voices, opposing voices, sometimes angry voices, competing voices. And I think that that's very much the case around the category of renunciation. And so we often see uh, across many genres of Tibetan and Himalayan literature, renunciation appearing as a tool of critique for people, for example, who pretend to be renunciants but aren't, or who should be renunciants but but are not. Um, and we see you know, jokes, songs, humorous stories, uh, humorous literature, contemporary uh, humor, um, drawing on the critical possibility of the category of renunciation to poke fun of abuses of power, um, to poke fun of exploitation. And so what I would say in response to your extremely important and, and urgently timely question is that I'm interested in the ways that renunciation can be used as a protection against abuse and exploitation and as a kind of measuring rod for the dynamics of what is going on. And I'm also interested in how historically renunciation has been used as a category of critique um, in precisely this way, while at the same time acknowledging that Renunciation, like the student hardship narrative, uh, is not itself immune from being uh, misused or distorted, um, and that there isn't a single intellectual or ritual or cultural category that uh, we can fall back on, um, but rather that there are kind of ongoing processes of accountability, um, which include, I think, uh, the category of renunciation. Um, that are the most fruitful avenues in this regard. Thank you. That is really beautifully and aptly put. And I I would like to echo your reminder that when we are thinking of the Buddhist tradition, it is not probably less fruitful to think of it as an unchanging, stagnant, and not self-reflective tradition, but rather to, to see it as something that is dynamic, something that is containing multitudes and contradictions, something that is self-critiquing, as you have said, um, per the late Steve Collins. And I really think your book is an exemplary study of this kind of dynamics of critiques 
of the complexities contained within the Buddhist ideals of renunciation and of longing. And I really think it is a must read for anyone who is interested in Tibetan studies, East Asian history, South Asian history, in Buddhist studies, and also just in the general idea of idea and ideal of renunciation and of emotion in religious studies as well. I don't want to take up too much of your time, and but I do want to, as a concluding question, to ask you um, if you mind sharing with us what you are working on right now after this fascinating book project and what we might expect from you next. Thank you so much. Um, well, I really appreciate those extremely kind words. And I'm still very interested in the themes that I explore in this book and also in Kudulama's own remarkable life. So because this book is so thematically structured and because um, it became such an opportunity to explore these broader literary dynamics and questions, I would also like to make available something more like a conventional uh, biography. And so I do hope to make one of my next projects uh, be that, be a kind of what I envision as a, a kind of a slim volume uh, that would be accessible um, for those who would like to learn more, uh, Anglophone readers who would like to learn more about uh, Kudalama's life. Uh, for Tibetan readers, of course, K. Amrup's uh, 2005 Namtar is a wonderful, beautiful, poetic, uh, richly researched and very engaging work. Uh, which I recommend very strongly. Um, and I would like to make something uh, similarly uh, engaging available for Anglophone uh, readership. Um, the other uh, thing that I hope very much to work on in a book length way soon uh, comes out of some shorter articles that I've published recently and some research that I've done about someone that Kunulama knew, um, the Drikung uh, Kagyu uh, meditative master and renunciate uh, Amgun Rinpoche. And Amgun Rinpoche was very famous during his own lifetime as someone who displayed extraordinary yogic powers. So the next book that I would like to write uh, looks at the practice of cultivation uh, and the ways that yogic powers are described as emerging uh, from Buddhist practices. I'm very interested in broader debates about uh, modernity and tradition and secularism and religiosity, uh, which I touch on in the Kunulama book as well, uh, but would very much come to the forefront when we uh, think about narratives of uh, yogic display. And I'm quite interested in the ways that Buddhist narratives of yogic display have contributions to make to conversations back in my old uh, favorite home as an undergraduate of uh, political theory where uh, European political theory traditions often draw on uh, Judeo-Christian and sometimes Islamic uh, categories uh, for their material. And I think there are some really rich conversations happening in uh, Tibetan literatures around uh, what power is, what it means, how people cultivate it, uh, how it's critiqued. Uh, and I'd like to bring those Tibetan resources um, into that political theory conversation. Um, so it's a kind of closing of the circle of my own uh, interests in a way. It all comes back to a circle now. 
Thank you very much, and I very much look forward to to reading those two books, and especially with the the shorter biography. I think it'll be a fascinating resource, even to assign in a in a Buddhism classroom alongside the Buddha's life story. So I very much look forward to reading that. And thank you for spending the time to talk about your new book with us today. And thank you, Annabella. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great delight to talk with you. Likewise. <laughs>